Welcome back to Fireside, a podcast from FS Investments. My name is Kara O'Halloran. I'm a director on our investment research team here. And on today's episode, we are going to talk once again about perhaps the most discussed topic in markets this year, inflation. But more specifically, with this focus on inflation has come a renewed interest in the investments designed to protect portfolios from rising prices, namely real assets. So we are going to touch on what real assets are, why investors have historically turned to them, and perhaps most importantly, what a well-designed real assets portfolio looks like in 2021. So with me to dig into all of this are uh, Laura Rehm, our chief U.S. economist, who has been on the podcast quite a few times by now, um, and Beth Ann Byrne, who is a liquid alternatives investment specialist here at FS and is making her podcast debut. Um, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> I hear you came with some jokes, so uh, we'll no be pressure, ready. No yeah, pressure, no pressure. But <laughs> I was warned there were some jokes, so we'll see. Um, so Laura, I want to start with you as always, you know, that's my MO. Um, we, along with the rest of the world have talked about inflation a lot this year, quite a few times. So we are recording this in early November. We're still seeing elevated CPI levels. We're hearing about supply chain bottlenecks, ports that are full of cargo ships. Everyone told me I'm already too late to have done my Christmas shopping. Well, Um, I need to buy a car. So right. You still haven't bought the car. We talked about that. I think in May. So it's clear that inflation did not prove transitory, at least if we use the definition of a few months, um, you know, that a lot of people had kind of called for back in the spring. So what is your current outlook on inflation? What are you closely watching? Sure. Well, you know, to your point, and I think we're, you know, I'm going to reiterate this several times because it's important to realize that, you know, CPI right now, it's 5.4% year on year. And when you exclude food and energy, right, that core CPI number is 4%. It's the highest since 1991. So if right now the inflation picture feels different, it's because it really, truly is different. And when you look at inflation right now, you pointed to some really obvious supply bottlenecks that have caused, you know, I do actually have to buy a car. That's not a joke, unfortunately. <laughs> but <laughs> so some acute price pressure on um, durable goods where we know that there are supply shortages and we know that there is enhanced demand because of the pandemic. Um, But we're just kind of seeing it bubbling up from a lot of different areas. Food prices, for example, are up 4% year on year. That is really quite high. That's food at the grocery store and food at restaurants. Obviously, energy prices are, are high as well. And things like rents are rising. That's still really hasn't added to price pressure yet, but it looks like it might over the next year. So it feels like a game of whack-a-mole. If you kind of explain one piece of inflation away, it's coming up from somewhere else. And, you know, I feel like, um, you know, I felt very negative six months ago when I was saying that I thought inflation could prove to be more lasting than just a sort of a transitory uh, wave. And at the time, I said I expected inflation to be persistently higher through 2022. And that's still my forecast, although I think now it's looking more and more like something a lot of others are expecting as well. Yeah. And I think it also sounds like if you if you think about you know, said rent inflation, I think wage inflation is starting to pick up. It's kind of these longer term, you know, stickier, stickier things. And it's a bigger ticket than say like, oh, my cup of coffee is 10 cents more now. Right, exactly. And I think that's what, you know, really the inflationary cycle that um, impacts company costs. It impacts our inflation expectations. You know, the longer that inflation sort of enters the psyche, um, the more lasting it could be. I, you know, I think 
to the concerns that we're going to be facing another hyperinflationary or rather just a, a really significant inflation um, jump like we had in the 1970s, there I don't think that is the primary concern. It's not my primary concern. Um, I expect that the Fed really does understand what they're keeping an eye on. The rate hikes are an option. These are, in many respects, the the battle that they know how to fight. Um, and in markets are also, I think, on board with that. Ten-year inflation expectations are still, they're a little higher, but they're still pretty well anchored around 2% versus two-year inflation expectations where, you know, markets are think that we could be facing inflation as high as 3% over the next year. It's a big difference from where we've been. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me to my next question, because I think that you know, two years is still a decent amount of time, in, especially when we're thinking about a portfolio. Um, so investors are going to have to contend with, uh, you know, what we think to be higher inflation. So what does this actually mean, you know, for our investments? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think let's just break down kind of the two legs that, you know, we traditionally think about, about investing. You know, you've got the fixed income side. I think, uh, you know, my expectation is that long-term interest rates are going to remain fairly low. Um, even though we may see for inflation kind of resting around that 3% rate, that keeps interest rates very negative. And even if, if interest rates rise uh, somewhat, you know, even if sort of, you know, you get the 10-year going from 150 to 175 to 2, that given how long duration, um, you know, so many portfolios are right now and have had to dig into that long duration position, that is going to really wreak havoc on the price side. So you're getting no income, real yields are still negative, and you're getting beaten up on price. Um, and then the equity side, actually, um, you know, I've been working with Brian Cho, who's, you know, one of the brilliant quantitative strategists at Chiron. And he, um, you know, has done really, I think, really important work on the impact of inflation on equity markets. And when you look at where we are, if you look at the regime of high inflation, rising inflationary pressures, the 12-month forward equity performance really suffers. Um, you go from, you know, in, an, in a decreasing inflationary environment, you're looking at 12-month forward returns historically of over 10%. But in a rising inflationary environment, you're looking at a forward 12-month performance that's down over a percent and a half. So, you know, when you look at Fed research, the, you know, the, the negative coefficient on inflation for CAPE ratios is one of the most important and statistically significant relationships. So, you know, the point is that investors routinely fail to account for inflation in their present value calculations. And that's really the core of the issue. And not to sound like negative, Nancy. So inflation is negative for both your bond and your equity well, allocation. Right. And, that, and I think that's something that, Kara, you know, you've written about too. Yeah, I think it's it's not even just it's bad for both sides. It's actually bad for the relationship between them. So that negative stock bond correlation that we've always counted on in our traditional 60-40 portfolio, at higher levels of inflation, that correlation breaks down. So your stocks and your bonds are moving together. The likes of what we've obviously started to see in the market, you know, in the yeah. last six, seven months, you've Absolutely. seen rates certainly fail to deliver versus equity down days. And unfortunately, it looks like right. this narrative continues. We're in for a bit more turbulence. No, it's, it's a really important point, Bethann. And I think when you look ahead, 
you know, this is what needs to be managed. This is the real, I think, the, to me, this is the top challenge facing investors over the next year. Yeah, agree. And I think that's a, a perfect place to you know bring Beth in more into the conversation. So one of the first places that people typically go when they're concerned about inflation is real assets. Um, and for our purposes, let's define traditional real assets as real estate, commodities, energy, and infrastructure, just to set the stage there. Um, so Bethany, first, maybe you could just walk us through kind of why these are good inflation hedges, but also what other roles these might serve in portfolios. Yeah, I mean, as you said, in the simplest sense, real assets are tangible investments, something you can touch, something you can hold. Whereas if you think about stocks and bonds, they're much more contractual in nature. They don't have these physical properties. You know, given that logic, obviously the four buckets that you outlined make a ton of sense. You have real estate, land, buildings, right? You have commodities, raw materials like copper that everybody's talking about. Energy, obviously we've seen what's been going on in the oil market. And finally, infrastructure, you know, something very, very relevant today, your airports, your roads, the likes of which are being talked about down in Washington. With that backdrop, I think what's more pertinent to our our conversation is the investment characteristics that they deliver. Um, first, income. These assets have historically generated steady cash flows, uh, given this demand tends to be inelastic. Revenues are generally contractually obligated, long-term in nature, and obviously, in this market, as we're all talking about, income is a pretty attractive property given where yields are and where they are potentially headed you know, further down the road. The second, which is core to the conversation we were having around the 60-40 and the failures uh, we've seen transpire and potentially can transpire in the future, you know, real assets have low correlations to both equities and bonds, particularly during periods of inflation. And obviously more relevant than ever, given these challenges Laura illustrated earlier. And of course, the, the obvious uh, answer here, they offer inflation protection, you know, the topic du jour. Demand tends to be inelastic and cyclically oriented rising prices are often passed on without penalty, right? So cash flows are predictable and these assets offer attractive investments during periods of rising inflation. So something that we you talk a lot about at FS is just this kind of need to almost redefine or, or maybe expand is a better word, um, the definition of real assets to kind of bring us into the 21st century. We have, we have a very modern office building here. We're like very into the, the modern thing. But <laughs> so what why do you think we need to change the definition and how would you define real assets now? So I'm going to answer that question with a question. Has the world... You're, you're turning the tables on me. I'm the one who's asked the questions here. Has the world changed materially since the 1970s? Just a little bit. And are there some people in this room who were not even born I, during I the 1970s? The I was born. Um, so clearly the answer is yes, right? The world has modernized and at an accelerated rate of change, particularly over the last 20 years. Thus, well, and over the last year and a half, yeah, even more with so. COVID, yeah. exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it's the a lot of the secular trends we saw in place have obviously been exasperated or accelerated as a result of COVID, um, and that kind of plays into exactly what we're looking to discuss here today, right? Though the real assets of old are still relevant, I think they're really only one piece of the puzzle. We need to redefine what I'll call this next generation of real assets, right? These assets tend to be a bit more growth oriented, but they are still inflation aware. Circling back to those 
four buckets you illustrated, Kara, earlier, you know, maybe an example of the next gen uh, real assets would help. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So for real estate, think your data centers, right? Not the traditional farmland of the 1970s and prior, right? Commodities, you're looking more at lithium, right? Things that are going to fuel the new investments of the 21st century. Um, You think energy, solar power, right? You can barely get through a conversation these days without whether it's ESG tilts or explicitly clean energy topics, right? Both um, from a day-to-day and down in Washington and from a, a fiscal policy perspective. And finally, infrastructure, right? That is not just airports and roads, that's cloud computing, right? And it's it's the things that... Broadband. Broadband, yeah. exactly. All the things that we've seen, again, circling back to the COVID narrative, come, come back, you know, and to front and center as we've gone to a remote working environment and, and things of that nature. So I don't know if that helps illustrate the point, but I really think... It's difficult to look at the real assets of old and think they're going to really deliver what you need in in this new modernized world. Yeah, and I think the way I always think about real assets is, okay, they are they were traditionally used to just build and power our nations and our economy, um, and so we need to think of the world as you said. We we just pointed out how different the world is, and going forward, you know, COVID just accelerated these trends. I don't this this remote work is here to stay, hybrid, whatever it looks like. You know, all of these trends, the the clean energy, um, you know, all of that was started. It's been accelerated, all of that. So these are just the things that are going to build and power our world and our economy going forward. I, I and mean, I was going to layer onto that that I feel like what we've seen has only um, really intensified the need for this kind of investment. I mean, how behind are we on a lot of these initiatives? We knew we were behind on broadband, you know, accessibility. We see that in the productivity numbers, but now all of a sudden nothing throws that need into high relief, like making everybody work from home yeah, and have to get access at home. it's front and center. Home. I mean, I really yeah. think these... One small example of, right. you know, this really large universe of potential investments. But And, and I think what's really critical about that is it, it really does manifest itself across each of these four buckets. Right. So, you know, it fits into the the investor need from an inflation perspective, but also it is going to offer you something that is beyond just an inflation solution. Right. This this modern approach should give you some durability throughout a full business cycle because cloud computing is not going away, whether inflation is 10 percent or 2 percent. Right. And so I think what's important to think about with this redefining real assets is you really have the opportunity to have something that's going to address inflation, but it's not limited to inflation. And that's exciting. So I also think about all of the tailwinds that are in place to kind of drive this new definition of real assets. Like I think about ESG and so more and more investors are, yes, of course, we're always looking for return, right? But investors are also making decisions based on more than just just numbers. You know, they're looking at the ESG policies of these companies. Um, I think about there's government tailwinds in place as well. Everyone is committed to, you know, decarbonization and at different varying stages, of course. But, you know, there are just there are social and governmental tailwinds that are driving um, driving these changes and I think will for years to come. I think also political because you think look at you know, the, the trade war is has not gone away. I think tensions with China continue to build. And 
We've seen with the supply chain disruptions, companies, large companies, really rethinking the way that they re-onshore, you know, or, the, or onshore some of their investment, which I know I'm, I'm guessing would align with with the, some of these strategies you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's that's what's beautiful about this modernization, right? You're able to kind of tap into the old, right? The things that are a stable source of income and return, particularly during times of inflation, but then also work through a very dynamic trend that we're seeing with companies in terms of supply chain, going remote, um, you know, ESG becoming a financial objective almost in a sense, right? And so an investment that can kind of have the stalwarts of real asset investing, but then also look to incorporate this ever-changing dynamic uh, in terms of modernization, I think it's exciting. I think, it's, again, not to beat a dead horse, but it's exciting beyond just inflation, right? Sure, oh, absolutely. absolutely. It is exciting. I mean, I think about just the magnitude of the opportunity in front of us. Look at Let's look at electric vehicles just as a, a simple example. You can Get, you can buy the electric vehicle maker itself, but then it's also solar panels, it's batteries, it's charging infrastructure. Lithium. There's yes, like there the Rare the earth, the, yeah, the minerals, the the little the metals and the minerals going into these are, are different. Um, so there's just every industry has these like knock on effects that you know it's just a massive massive opportunity in front of us. Yeah, and I think what's extremely exciting about this opportunity is. I don't think there's a lot of people out there thinking of real assets in this lens, right? I think that a lot of the playbook is to go back to the traditional real assets, right? It worked in the 70s. (laughs) That's when we had inflation. Leave the conversation there. Whereas I think it's almost, you know, it's, it's it's ignorant in a sense, or I think it's misinformed to think that the, you know, investment characteristics that we employ today are the same as of the 1970s. I mean, think of what growth was in the 1970s versus what growth investing is today. They're not the same. So I really feel like the ball's being dropped if you limit your investment universe to the real investments of old. But Beth Ann, as part of that, because inflation just has not been a concern for 20 Years, And I think when I hear you talk about, you know, this really changed and, um, you know, complete innovation of the real asset space, it strikes me that, you know, this has been kind of a, a neglected sector simply because, you know, I think that, you know, the, the sort of the knee jerk connection is when inflation's, you know, higher, we need to think about this. You know, I know that you've been talking to me about the importance of real asset investing a year ago when inflation wasn't as high as it is now. So you know, I, th- I think the reality is we've we haven't been shining as much light on this area because of the inflation dynamics. But in reality, this innovation goes so far beyond just what inflation is doing. It's a hundred percent. And that's a hundred percent. I think of if I were to, you know really highlight my punchline. It's that this is not just an inflation solution, right? What modernizing your approach to real asset investing does is allow you to have something that's going to have differentiated returns, regardless if you get 2%, 5%, 10%. And some of that'll be 
moving, toggling the levers between more of the traditional and more of the the new gener- next generation investing, uh, real asset investing. But if you have something that's dynamic that can move between these two paradigms, you really don't even, I mean, I don't want to make you irrelevant because you're the economist talking about inflation, <laughs> but you, re- <laughs> you really don't need to have the economist come in and tell you what their inflation forecast is. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's, well, it sounds like if there's an upside to inflation, it's that it causes people to start a conversation about real assets. <laughs> exactly. And you don't have to get into the nitty right. gritty. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was that was a great conversation. Thank you both so much for joining. Um, I, I'm super excited. You got me excited even more so about about real assets, Beth Ann. So I think you did your job. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, look, as I said, I, I really think the punchline here is this new paradigm gives you the ability to design something that is inflation aware provide, or provides an inflation hedge, gives you income diversification, you know, is a hedge to equities and bonds, but can do so throughout a full business cycle, right? And that if there's one thing I want you to take away today, it's really, there is the opportunity to have a durable inflation solution through a full business cycle. And I'll say it one more time in case. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining. Thanks, Kara. Right. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. If you found this helpful, subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they're available. Mm-hmm.